Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, from my home office in Westchester County, New York. Joining me today is Arya Saeed, co-founder and executive director of the Transgender District, the first legally recognized transgender district in the world. Encompassing six blocks in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, it aims to stabilize and economically empower the transgender community through homeownership, business opportunities, cultural and historical sites, and overarchingly, and most importantly, safe community spaces. Aria, who co-founded the district in 2019, is a transgender advocate and award-winning political strategist in her own right, having written and or led numerous public policy efforts in San Francisco and at the state level in California. She was a co-creator for the first sex worker protection law in the United States, supported legislation like SCR 110 in California, the first legislation in U.S. history to name the harms of non-consensual medical interventions on intersex people, and was appointed LGBT policy advisor to the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. And these examples of her important work are only the tip of the iceberg. Prior to the transgender district, Aria also launched Queen Culture Initiative, a transgender woman of color empowerment project. Aria, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you. I'm so glad we're able to schedule this session. So let's just start, before we talk about the Transgender District, I want to talk about the Queen Culture Initiative, because I feel like that happened before the district, and it probably is connected to in some ways and was also part of the inspiration behind the founding of the district. So why don't we start there? They actually kind of coincided. So Queen Culture is, I call it my baby. It is a social and cultural empowerment project specific for Black trans women. And we do some really incredible activities like empowerment retreats, sessions on like self-esteem and events, get-togethers, etc. And it's really about building camaraderie and sisterhood with each other. I think a huge inspiration behind it, and I've shared this before, but with my work in doing transgender advocacy, I'm usually sort of asked to work with cisgender people and explain to them why the transgender community is marginalized. And there was a period in my life where I was on a speaking tour. And so I was going to different cities around the country. And it just felt like every night that I was on stage or in these workshops with different tech companies or Fortune 500 companies, and I would sort of be asked to talk about trans people, it was always about our disparity. And so it sort of became this memorized script where I would just sort of say like, oh, transgender people are marginalized and disenfranchised and experience high rates of violence and unemployment and discrimination and multiple barriers towards thriving in the United States. And I had started to experience depression and just in my mind, I was like, who wants to own that? Like who wants to wake up and and have that be the label for their experience? For me, when I'm around other trans women, I feel so empowered. It's when I feel like I'm most like myself. And, you know, the experiences that I've had have always been very joyful. And so something that I hope that Queen does is highlight our resilience, our beauty, our tenacity to live in a world that does not want us to exist, while also acknowledging our disparity. 
that's like a huge inspiration. And when we were working towards creating the district simultaneously, I was working on this idea for queen culture. So, yeah. You launched the district in 2019. Can you talk a little bit about... Yeah. Oh, sorry, 2017. My Uh apologies. Can you talk a little bit about what does it comprise? And I can only guess that the logistics and the politics and the amount of time involved (laughs) in the different parties... And you probably ran into a couple of assholes along the way, I'm sure. (laughs) What was that like? How did you put it together? And what was that like? And I'm sure there are certain people that you're so very grateful for because they stood with you to make this happen. Yeah. So our work with the district came in a sort of roundabout way. At that time, I was deputy director of St. James Infirmary, which is a sex worker clinic. I think it's still the nation's only peer-led sex worker-specific clinic. And we shared a building with TGI Justice Project. So that's Transgender, Gender Variant, Intersex Justice Project, which is a Black trans-led prison abolition project here in San Francisco. For those who don't know about the layout of San Francisco, the city definitely changed as it became a mecca for all of the companies that are based here today. The landscape has really changed and other neighborhoods like the Mission District and Soma really saw a huge wave of businesses being closed, of communities that have been living there for for multiple decades, a huge wave of displacement of minorities that had been lived there just because the affordability changed. A developer was coming in to the neighborhood. They had already purchased this block on Market Street. Their name is Group I, and they had already sort of doled out their community benefits. And the Tenderloin neighborhood has the densest transgender population of any neighborhood in San Francisco and perhaps the country. So when we saw that there wasn't a monetary community benefit provided specific to the trans community who would inadvertently be displaced in this neighborhood, we started our advocacy in asking the developer to support trans-led efforts and, and to put resources into the community to mitigate any possible displacement, further homelessness, etc. And we had to fight for it. And so that's how our fight began. While we were doing this advocacy, we were learning about how other minority communities provided protections for their community to stay in neighborhoods. And so cultural districts, loosely, in every city, people have a reference point. So Chinatowns, here we have Japantown, Little Italy, Old Ukraine, those are all sort of loose examples of what a cultural district is. But they provide a protection for the community to stay and to build an economy that the broader public gets to participate in. And then their community sort of thrives in these neighborhoods. And so that was our our inspiration. And we really explored the idea and concept of a cultural district. A huge reason was we have access to a piece of history, the Compton's Cafeteria Riots, which is the first documented trans and queer-led uprising in United States history, happened in August 1966 here in San Francisco's Tenderloin on Turk and Taylor. Three years later, Stonewall would happen 
I believe Cooper's Donuts in LA was also a riot that happened. And those riots were just sort of the birth of LGBT liberation. And so we wanted to protect that history as well as acknowledge how, while we have the densest population of trans people in our neighborhood, most of them are living in abject poverty. And so we advocated with the city. Board of Supervisor Jane Kim at that time was like our district city council. And surprisingly, a lot of opposition to our work was from queer white people, <laughs> to be quite honest. I feel like now we can sort of say those things <laughs> in a way that we... I wouldn't have expected you to say that, actually. Yeah, I think, you know, not everyone is on board with liberation. I think that's just a reality. I think sometimes we cling to what we know and understand. And I think in particular, the queer community in San Francisco, in a lot of ways, see that they had to fight a very different fight in order to become socially and politically powerful here in San Francisco, from owning businesses and property and sort of what the Castro is today. All those things sort of, I think, have a very different journey than what we had to protect our community and that that community had resources to do that. Our community did not. You think there would be a level of empathy and understanding, though, I guess, or it's kind of like, yep, we're pulling the ladder up. (laughs) You're on your own. (laughs) Um, But we've seen this time and time again in our community. Trans people are sort of the reason why LGBT communities across the world have the liberations that they have. When we think about how policing works and how those laws were enforced during those times where it was illegal to cross-dress or it was illegal, you know, sodomy laws and all, all that kind of stuff, crimes against nature laws, the people that were most impacted by the enforcement of those laws were poor folks, people of color, trans people who would congregate on the street, Black and and Latinx LGBT people. So the reality is, is if you saw the movie Hollywood on Netflix, or not movie, the TV show. I started watching it recently. yeah, Yeah, something that they kind of highlight, which I wish they talked about more, was how people with wealth who had a queer identity or a trans identity were sort of able to be concealed and and safe, right? And protected because of their wealth or prestige. And so they were able to have, you know, private gatherings of folks and not have police come and raid and et cetera. So when going back to the history that we have with trans people leading liberation, we have been left behind once before. There's a video of Sylvia Rivera, who was at Stonewall, going to, I think it was like the second annual New York Pride, and she had to fight her way onto the stage, and they booed her. And I think of that quite often, because I think for a lot of queer community, this is why intersectionality is always important, but a lot of queer community felt that trans people just were not palatable enough to be accepted by American society. And so it was a lot easier to just focus on, you know, showing and normalizing queer experiences. And even with the fight for marriage equality in our movements, many LGBT community stakeholders felt that trans people should sort of stay silent 
in our movement and wait our turn, right? Like, oh, once marriage equality happens, then we will come and help you. And I think that's a similar experience that we see today where a lot of trans-led efforts have sort of been doing a lot of the groundwork and, and the frontline work without a lot of recognition or signal boosting in ways that other organizations have had. And it was the same with ours. And federally, you're challenged by an administration that's doing everything they can to reverse any laws that protect the transgender community. Yeah. uh, The recent article that I just saw was Trump and, oh, can I say names? (laughs) Of course you can. Feel free. Everything goes. But Trump and, and Ben Carson, I think his name is, they released a statement saying, how to identify a trans woman who may be asking for housing in a homeless shelter. But why? Right, because now they don't want, or now they've made it legal to prohibit trans people from accessing housing in homeless shelters based on their gender identity. And so now you have to turn in proof of your genitalia to be housed. And so when we think about how over 70% of trans women of color are experiencing homelessness or housing instability in the country, we're also a very small population. So I think for those who may not have an unawareness on why it is significant that the the presidential administration would make attacks on the trans community, we make up less than 1% of the general population. So we are probably, we're a very small community. Yeah, suicide rates, mental health issues, poverty, violence is extraordinarily high in that 1%. Yeah, the marginalization of a super small community. It's not that trans people are ever present. You don't see like 20 million trans people walking down the street in your in whatever city you live in, right? And so while we are mighty and growing in visibility, and I think people are seeing that our experience is a part of the human condition, I think also it's really interesting to watch how an administration would consistently perform legislative attacks on such a small marginalized group. Which is the definition of pure discrimination and hate, quite frankly. Yes. When you walk into the, or enter the transgender district in San Francisco, I know this is going to sound totally uninformed, but I haven't traveled in months, so you have to forgive me. Literally, (laughs) I've not traveled in months. Is there signage? Is there not branding, but do you physically feel like you are in a different kind of neighborhood and area? Because one of the things that you're doing also is providing safe places. So I imagine there's some level of policing as well, like, or, or security that goes on. I would say that our recent placemaking efforts are a celebration of the trans experience. So we, I think over now a year ago, we did paint every streetlight in the trans flag colors. And we do have signage at the entry points of our neighborhood that say the transgender district. I never in a million years thought that it would actually impact me the way that it did. When we think about pride and LGBT pride, as a as a Black trans woman, I'm like, well, what am I supposed to be happy about? <laughs> this is the question that I have, given the disparity that our community faces. So while I do celebrate pride, seeing the trans flag colors painted on the streetlights was such an affirmation for me to find pride 
in my journey and, and my experience. I was like, oh, this is what everyone else is going through when we talk about pride. Like, this is it. This is what pride feels like. And so we're six blocks in the Tenderloin. And our big goal is to cultivate an atmosphere that celebrates the presence and history and culture of trans people. And so we're doing that in different ways. I think in general, the concept of safety, we don't have security, but most trans people, because it's very normal to see trans people walking around in our neighborhood, because there's so many of us in this small area, that generally our safety is, isn't compromised. There may be incidents of violence, and that's with any city. So there may be someone who misgenders you or calls you out and points out that you're trans on the street. And there's definitely been incidents of violence, but in general, we haven't experienced like capital violence in the neighborhood on trans people in ways that other cities have especially in the South. I think in general, our community is just very proud to have a piece of the neighborhood and and to, to really celebrate our experience and our history in this area. Trans people have been living in this neighborhood as early documented as the 1920s. And I think even trans people who don't live here, they find that this is home. A lot of times, In the trans experience, for me, transitioning as a teenager, you spend a lot of your life trying to find a place that's home and safe, and not necessarily in a tangible way, but just in an atmosphere. And I think trans people find that in this neighborhood. Do you mind if I ask you how old you are? Yeah. So I'm 30. Okay. You're so young. Dirty 30. If you're okay talking about it, can you talk a little bit about what it was like transitioning, especially as a teenager? One of the reasons why I ask is because I do think that if you were 40 or 50, your answer might be a little bit different, maybe even 20. And hopefully, anytime I ask, the experiences hopefully are better, obviously. But if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. For me, my childhood was a complicated one and that I feel like I showed sort of transgender expressions by the age of three, right? Which is a story that many trans people share in in their experience. My parents were drug addicts. So at one point I did go into foster care. And in one foster home I lived in, I think fourth grade, I did get to sort of transition to be feminine and, and to go to school and present in a feminine way. And it was definitely the scandal of the neighborhood I lived in in Gig Harbor, Washington, if you could imagine. And this was in the 90s. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a very different experience. Of course, I moved to a different home with my adopted family, very religious. My adopted dad is a bishop in the Protestant church. So Church of God in Christ, which is a denomination in, in like Pentecostal church. And so my family was like, what are you doing with all these dresses? Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. And from there, I think just culturally, people policed me for my behavior, whether it was the way that I walked or talked. And, you know, school was definitely very difficult. I would get bullied and jumped. And these boys used to follow me home and and jump me like every, every other day. And my parents would be like, you need to fight back. And I just was so timid and shy and weirdly religious. So people tease me about that too. Like, 
<laughs> in high school, I I just was tired of trying to conform. And so I think about it now and I was just so much more bolder and so much more radical than I am now. I feel old in some ways because, you know, in my teen but years. You, but I, you've probably, you've chilled a little, right? Like you've matured, right? Considerably <laughs> compared to back then. But I think I was just fighting to to be authentic. And so I transitioned in high school. So as soon as I could start legally working, I worked in retail. And so, you know, retail is that blurry industry where you, they kind of celebrate male body people being gender nonconforming. And so I was able to express myself in ways that I would not have been able to elsewhere because I did work in, in beauty and cosmetics. And so, yeah, I started transitioning then. And and then I discovered the word transgender because at that time, people just referred to me as like really, really, really gay. <laughs> and no one in Portland, Oregon knew the term transgender. That's where I'm from. At least Black people didn't in my neighborhood, Northeast Portland. So once I discovered the word, I was like, oh my God, this is me. This is my experience. And Fast forward, of course, the consequence of me deciding to live authentically was that my parents put me out and I've been on my own since I was 17 and, you know, worked to try to figure out how to like work a job and graduate high school and couch surf and and all the things like so many trans youth end up experiencing. I think I was privileged in the way that my family did invest in my education. I went to private school. Like, there were ways in which I, me being on my own at 17 was not as catastrophic as it would sound because I was super mature for my age. So yeah, while everyone else was working at McDonald's, I was working at Nordstrom's. So it was like a very, (laughs) I wasn't a normal 16, 17 year old. But even now just chatting with you, you're wise beyond your years. Like not that 30 is bad, but you don't, when you speak, you don't sound like a 30 year old. I know people think I'm in my 40s. Yeah, like a wise <laughs> a wise old soul. So your adoptive parents, do you do you still talk to them or have you just Oh, they- our relationship is so much better now. I mean, I don't get a chance to talk to my adopted dad as much. They divorced and I was always closer to my mom, my adopted mom, and so I think it was just a different time back then. So to for reference point After I transitioned, I think the first moment that people were having access to the word transgender was when Isis King came out on America's Next Top Model. And, you know, for me, I had never seen a Black trans woman in that way. Most of my reference points for trans experience was around like older white people who were transitioning. And even when a guidance counselor at school was like, oh, I found this support group. The experience was older white trans women who were, you know, exploring their identity and their truth while also having to navigate being married or having kids. And and I was 16, 17. So for me, it was like, oh, they're old. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Or or it was more drag culture, pop culture and RuPaul, right? Yeah. A little bit different. A little bit different. Yeah. I think the only times I ever saw black trans women were on Jerry Springer. 
that's not good. Jerry Springer, not good. Right? No. It's a, you yeah. know, not, we didn't have dignity or we weren't multifaceted on television. It was just like, is that a man or a woman? It's a man, Maury. It's a man, right? Like that was, that was very much. And they were appropriating it for viewers and for commercial success. It's not like they cared about the trans community. Yeah. And so Isis King coming out on America's Next Top Model was just such a, proud moment for me because I was young and I saw someone who was also young and, and beautiful and sharing her story to the world in a way that still had dignity and it wasn't sensational. I mean, I think it was sensationalized for that time in comparison to now, where back then you definitely had to talk about your body parts and surgeries and all that kind of stuff. And so she was doing those things publicly, right, with Tyra Banks. But, you know, after that, Laverne Cox was on I Want to Work for Diddy. And that was like a thing. And so for me, even though I'm young, I think I transitioned at a time where there wasn't that representation. And, and now I meet trans people who have grown up seeing Laverne Cox on television, seeing people like Janet Mock, tell their story through a book or television or Raquel Willis or so many different icons and in different industries. And now we see trans politicians like Andrea Jenkins in Minneapolis or entertainers or writers or scientists. You never saw that. For me growing up, I never saw that. And then transitioning, I thought I could only work retail. I moved to San Francisco when I was 19, which is why... I have such a deep love for the Tenderloin and the Trans District is because when I moved here, I had $60 in my purse. I came here on a Greyhound bus at that time from Seattle. And it was my first time meeting other trans women, Black trans women on the street. I remember coming into the Tenderloin on the bus and then got off the bus, walked two blocks and saw two trans women walking their dogs like, going to the deli and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, someone that looks like me. Oh my God. Like I'd never seen that. Like just casually walking, like it was normal. And you were alone. You did this alone. Yeah. Did you get any sort of counseling or any sort of, you know, mental health assistance when you were a teenager? You know, you said your adoptive parents are very religious. They went through a divorce. You're closer to one than the other. Were they at least supportive in that way or was it more like self-care i just i had to go it on my own the way that i knew how i don't think you know the, and being black also we at that time weren't talking about things like therapy or our mental health yeah there's a huge stigma associated with that yeah right like i always assumed that that was where you went when when you went crazy right like right you know now i have access to therapy and other resources to sustain my self-care and my mental health. But back then, if you were doing that, you didn't talk about it. And so for me, it was going to college. I ended up dropping out at the end of my freshman year. But going to college really saved me as a young trans teen because I think I would have ended up... The pathway I was on with sort of finding my way and finding validation and like people who would take care of me, like grown men, grown cisgender men who would take advantage of me being a teenager and being trans, like 
college really gave me a lot of normalcy that I needed. And even though it was difficult, I think I was the only, everyone knew who I was on my college campus simply because I was the only one that they knew of walking around as a trans person at that time. But the nurses at the student union, the nurse practitioners, they helped me safely start using hormones. Whereas before I was using black market, you know, they encouraged me to, to go to therapy or find phone resources at that time. I think finding other trans people on YouTube definitely gave me a sense of community. But up until I moved to San Francisco, I had never met another trans person in my age bracket or who was a minority ethnically, right? And so, yeah, coming to the Tenderloin at that time and at 19, all the trans women I knew, we either did sex work or we worked at a makeup counter. And so there wasn't a variety of, of jobs or, you know, we all were applying. I was applying here in San Francisco, everywhere. And I sometimes would go into interviews and people would start laughing and people are like, what, in San Francisco? I'm like, yes. And so for a long time, I really believed that that's all that we could do. And so I, like so many others, was in survival sex work, but I just, I wanted more. (laughs) I kept wanting this like normal life. And so that's what I worked so hard to get. And yet my life is actually not really normal, but I'm, I'm growing to, to love and embrace it. I'm just kind of curious, you know, so I, I grew up in a very progressive household. I have two gay siblings in high school. My brother, who's a performer likes to perform as Joan Rivers, and he's very good. And I was a junior in high school, and he actually won this thing called the Joan for a Day Lookalike Contest. And he actually was on the show, and this is 1986. And I'm a junior in high school. And while, you know, I'm not my brother, I go to high school the next day, and I was very proud of him. And I'm like, that's really cool. And he's a budding young actor at the time. And I got teased. (laughs) And I got bullied. And I felt for a second what it was like to be him, even though I'm not him. And it's different. You know, he's not trans, but at the same time, and especially in the mid 80s, right? He was still ostracized and made fun of. And then because I'm his brother, you know, people made fun of me. And it wasn't until that moment where I think my aperture was kind of opened as a cisgender, you know, straight white guy, right? And I think one of the challenges is, you know, I'm, I'm sitting a couple of days ago and I'm talking to a couple of people. I'm in a YMCA golf outing, a charity fundraiser, and I'm trying to explain the importance of identifying your pronouns to these three white older guys who are lovely people, who are incredible people, but they just weren't understanding why it's so important. And I said, well, you know, I went through this training and the individual who led this training explained to me the amount of violence and the suicide rates for individuals in the trans community and people who are, you know, gender non-conforming. And it is astounding and it's very upsetting. And it, and it was at that moment where I finally got their attention. And I, I don't know if it should always have to be that way where it takes me that long to try to get their attention by using those statistics and explaining it that way. Right. But I'm just wondering, this is a very long way of me asking, I'm wondering what are the tools that we can use part of our community to help educate people on trans issues and how do we empower people to get involved? Even if they're not part of the community, it doesn't mean that we can't help. I think 
ways this audience can support trans people is hearing our stories in, in its fullness. I think acknowledging that our marginalization is a huge fact right now, but that we need everyone listening to help shift that culture, that it doesn't have to be permanent. I think, you know, when we talk about pronouns, that is an attempt to shift our culture that says that we should assume who and what people are based on their appearance, right? And allowing people to express themselves and not be the odd one out. So that's where the idea of having workplaces start asking pronouns came from, was that the only people that were, you know, announcing their pronouns were trans or or non-binary people. And so what would it look like if everyone participated so that it is normal to share your pronoun and and not be the one that has to have the burden of educating everyone around you on your specific pronoun. And to send the message that we're welcoming. Yeah. We accept that, right? Otherwise, how do you know, right? How do you know that the environment I'm about to walk into isn't hostile towards me, isn't, you know, ignorant? Yeah. And that you're more than just tolerated, that you're actually accepted and a part of the fabric of your workplace. That's why... You know, I think in some ways as our community, we can be very militant about our advocacy and it it can fall on deaf ears for lack. I hope that's that's probably not a political way to. to It's okay. Political common expression. You know, it's okay. But, you know, the idea of gender neutral restrooms or all gender restrooms converting bathrooms at the workplace to be gender inclusive is really about so that the one trans person who may be in the office doesn't have to go down six flights to find a restroom that's like ADA accessible, all gender restroom, right? But that there's equal access for everyone, whether they're open about their identity or they choose to keep it for themselves. Because that's another thing, like not everyone is obligated to share with your entire team, like, that you are the trans person. Sometimes that's a huge burden, especially if you just want to focus on doing a great job at work. No, it shouldn't matter in that way. Now, you you had mentioned before you grew up in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So that city, as we're speaking right now, is on fire. It is. And it's sad. And you have a mayor that's caught between, he's also chief of the police as mayor, and he's also battling with the Trump administration because Trump is sending federal agents in who have no affiliation or at least obvious affiliation with what agency they're in and unmarked cars pulling protesters into vehicles, right? Kidnapping them, right? Because they're not announcing who they are. Right, right. So they're essentially operating like the KGB as secret of police who are kidnapping protesters because they're not identifying themselves. Yeah. You know, it's scary and it's disgusting. I'm just wondering how you're feeling. This is, was your home? for many years, your formative years, and now you're seeing what's going on there. How does that feel? I have to say that I'm not surprised. I mean, I love Portland. Portland is my home town. But I think I want people to also understand these things are not new. (laughs) I think because they're reaching major media now and because they're happening to white people, the world is hearing about it. But if you listen to hip hop, like, this is an experience that we've had for a very long time in minority communities in the United States, no matter what city you're in. 
I think it's also reminding us how there's no such thing as this just being a moment. I think the incidences taking place in in Portland and uh, what was taking place in Minneapolis are examples that this advocacy, this being set on fire to shift our culture and our country into an environment and a place that actually accepts everyone and provides life, liberty, happiness, and justice, that that has to always continue. This can't just be a three-month season where everyone got off the couch and spoke up, and then they go back to finding recipes for banana bread. This has to be a part of our lives until everyone has to have an investment and play a part in shifting our culture until our culture has shifted. Yeah, I think that's well said. And the passing of John Lewis recently, I think, reminds us all that, you know, smart, active dissent does directly lead to positive changes in policy, right? So you have to keep your foot on the pedal. And it's not just individuals, but it's organizations, it's institutions, because one of the things that's come out over the last several months is this concept of systemic racism. And that's probably the biggest argument I get in with people to explain that it's not just individual, it's actually bigger and it's, and it's worse in many ways because it's systemic. And I think that, you know, organizations, and by that I also mean brands, they have a larger role to play. You know, I wrote this article in Forbes and I said, now it's time for brands to remove their masks. And never before in our history have we seen both an expectation and permission and accountability of our institutions to step up and to show up. And to talk about these things. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We've talked about these things almost in private, to private, or we've talked about it around the kitchen table, but never in the boardroom, never in the corporate table. And we need to allow ourselves to be more vulnerable. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned is I need to be more of myself and to be more vulnerable and to talk about these things. And they are hard conversations, but they're hard for a reason. It's interesting because all these new books are out, you know, or not new, but they're you know, there's, I don't know if you've read anything, any of them like White Fragility or How to Be an Anti-Racist. And Mm -hmm. I read a fiction book called The Vanishing Half recently. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. It's fascinating. I'm not going to give it away. Actually, when I say I read, I don't. I listen. I don't read anymore. (laughs) Everything's audible. The Vanishing Half is a relatively new book. It's been out about a year. It's fiction, but it's about these two young women who were raised in Louisiana. And as they grow older, they're they're identical twins. One passes as white and the other doesn't, or doesn't try to rather. And they kind of lead their own lives and they come back together again. But there is a whole section in it, which was unexpected, but really nice and a pleasant surprise that addresses the trans community, which came out of nowhere. So it's called The Vanishing Half. I highly recommend it. Okay. You won't stop listening or you won't put the book down if you're going to read it like old school, like other people do. I'm now more than ever craving more and more content to better understand, enlighten, and also kind of kind of change who I am and people around me. And it's important. And conversations like this are important. I, I am so in awe of you and everything you've been through. And you are one of the strongest, most impassioned, and dedicated individuals I think I have ever met. And I hope that others follow in your footsteps and also become active and activists and also give voice to the movement and to trans people and the community because it's so important. So I really appreciate you being 
on the show today and telling your story and opening yourself up because I know it's not easy and it's hard. And I appreciate that you sharing your journey and your story with us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for folks for listening. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast, and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Yeah.